everyone, and welcome to the 22nd episode of the Atlas Society Asks. I'm Jennifer Anju Grossman. where we are about to start filming our next two Draw My Life videos. My name is Property and my name is Free Speech. So uh, because we pour all of our pennies into the production, I am staying at a very inexpensive hotel. Uh, hence why I have this virtual background and not my usual bookcase, which is filled to the brim with books by our very special guest today, John Tamney. Um, I want to, before I even get into introducing John, I want to remind all of you guys, you've been here before, you know what to do. Type in your questions into the Q&A chat uh, on Zoom or just ask them on uh, YouTube. Today we have a uh, just a record-breaking number of people that are joining us um, because we have such a spectacular guest who just joined me about a week and a half ago out in Malibu for our gala. So John, as all of you guys already know, John is uh, the Vice President and Director of the Center for Economic Freedom at FreedomWorks. He is also the editor of Real Clear, uh, Real Clear Markets. John is widely published in the areas of tax, trade, markets, uh, and monetary policy. He has a new book coming out in February, When Politicians Panicked, The New Coronavirus, Expert Opinion, and a Tragic Lapse of Reason. John is also the author of a 2018 book, uh, which we recently featured in the waterfall section of our website, as well as in our Atlas Intellectuals group. Uh, that book was The End of Work, which addresses the impact of technology on the workplace. Um, John, welcome again. Thank you for joining us. Hey, Jennifer, thank you so much for having me on. It's, it's a really flattering and a privilege to get to do this. Well, thank you. And um, we were last together, like I said, just a week and a half ago. Um, but before that, you have been so generous and everyone at, at FreedomWorks uh, has been so generous to have the Atlas Society on um, your uh, very much more widely listened to podcast and, and interviews. Uh, and then of course we were together in person, I think back in February uh, at FreedomWorks headquarters in, um, in Washington, DC. And um, wow, how much has changed since then? Um, tell me a little bit about this new book. How did the genesis of the idea and the gestation of uh, writing it, um, what what moved you and, and what uh, should we look forward to? Well, it, it's a great question. And what really what moved me to write it is the nature of our meeting in February. Think about it. Were we talking then about a collapsed economy, about tens of millions in the US alone put out of work, about hundreds of millions around the world rushing towards starvation, about hundreds of millions more rushing back into poverty because of the actions of politicians. And so you think about how quickly panicked politicians, Democrats, Republicans, politicians around the world have done such horrific damage to so many people, to so many businesses. Business, businesses are a miracle. And out of nowhere, they've been pushed into the dustbin, they've pushed into bankruptcy. And, and worse than that, think about what, what's done. When governments wreck an economy so quickly, they set the stage for themselves as to be the only borrower in town because they're backed by the very people, they're backed by genius that produces the revenues for them. But they set the stage for them to be the only source of capital at the time. And so you wreck businesses and then you say, hey, your only shot to maybe stay in operation is us, the government. You have to give up. You have to swallow all of your pride and take money from the last source you would have ever considered going to if you want to stay back in business. And so 
why did I write the book? I never bought the two weeks thing. I kept saying to people, don't you ever give up near-term freedom. They, they will never just take, it's not a two-week thing. It's going to go into be much worse. And then as it dra dragged on and on, I was writing feverishly, putting out six, sometimes seven op-eds a week, sometimes two in a day. And it became a book because I think that is essential that our side own this narrative. If we don't own this narrative, if we don't make clear that this was not a virus that caused a global economic contraction, that it was nail-biting politicians, then we set the stage for another tragic episode like this in the future. Oh, that's a really good point. And um, I want to just also encourage everyone who's watching, this is a tremendous opportunity. We have one of the, the greatest thinkers on uh, on, on economics, on tax policy, and also one of the most courageous voices on the economic devastation wrought by lockdowns. And I really hope that you're listening with, uh, with alacrity and with an open mind about what John is saying in terms of what caused this, this pain. I was at dinner last night um, with a, a donor who had also attended the gala. And I was just almost moved to tears um, because he was so emotional. He was so emotional about the gala and having attended the gala. And it, yeah, it was a great event, but I, the context to me was that this, this person who had been locked inside with his child, uh, who had been frightened to death. He's not, not an objectivist, not necessarily a political person one way or the other, but just the, the sort of this economic toll that this has taken in terms of traumatizing, I mean, really traumatizing um, so many people. But, you know, the upside of it is that we have an ability to be grateful for the small uh, things that are, are, are given to us that we enjoy. And one of the things that I um, remember that you had asked me last time, which was a wonderful recommendation, you'd asked me if I had read uh, A Gentleman in Moscow, which I had not then, but have since. And that is such an amazing story of someone who is swept up in this chaotic, um, brutal, brutal uh, systemic change and yet sort of reacts with grace and, and dignity and gratitude and benevolence. Um, tell us a little bit also, not just about the neg negative impact, but what have been some of the opportunities if we to just, not that we're trying to look at this through rose colored glasses, but you know, we do focus a lot on gratitude at the Atlas Society in part, just as a way of grounding ourselves and saying, you know, we have, we have a position from which we can launch into the universe and make change because we are not just completely with nothing. We, we have something and we can appreciate it. It's a great question. And certainly I'm not one of these people. I think it's so often the case that economists in particular say, well, you know, World War II is awful and those millions of people died, but you know, we came up with this advance, this scientific advance. So isn't it, you know, I will never say that because people like us will always say, consider the unseen. What if they hadn't exterminated all those people in the war? What would they have, have created? Um, but I think it's certainly true that, that, that positives come up of this. And, and one of them, I think, emerged from Southern California uh, on July 4th. Um, it was so interesting. Remember how the left a few years ago said, well, the internet is dead. If we somehow give the owners of the pipe into the home the right to charge different prices for it, it's just going to disappear, which was so completely ludicrous. But, you know, people like Farhad Manjian in the New York Times said, say, say so, so long the internet, you know, it's going to disappear if we, if we make profit part of, it, of its design. But what did, what did the internet revealed its greatness amid all this? And I think one of the ways in which it did was on July 4th, you saw Southern Californians giving the proverbial middle finger to politicians. You're gonna shut down our, our, our uh, fireworks shows. You're gonna shut down the Rose Bowl fireworks show. Well, guess what? We're gonna do this on our own. Never again will you, will you take away our freedom in this way. And, and so I think in a sense, 
And we're seeing this around the world right now. The Italians are fighting back against further lockdowns. And in Manchester, England, they're fighting back against the ability of people to lock them down. I think Americans were woken up to once again, just how much damage those in power can do in such short order. And so in a sense, it was a, it was a good education. I, I would not ever say, okay, this makes it worth it because it's not, it's not worth it to see what they've done, not just to, to Americans, but people around the world. But uh, we see the power of the internet. We see the power of communication. We see what we, we see that, um, that Americans, and I think the rest of the world, they're wiser to what politicians do. They break things, they damage things, they make policy. And they're trying to make policy right now. No, 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 a policy is a non sequitur. Free people, their natural state is to grow and prosper. And so I think it's kind of woke. I'd like to think it's woken people up to this. So speaking of policy, um, have you been monitoring what uh, the, the negotiations and what's currently in the um, stimulus bill being discussed in Congress. Um, what are your thoughts on it? Um, I don't monitor it too much in detail because I reject the notion of it as stimulus. Um, let's never, they always say, well, we need government spending to stimulate the economy. Actually, that gets it backwards. An economy, a growing economy is what enables government spending. In order to stimulate the depressed, you must, by definition, depress the stimulated. You must take from the most productive and basically shift money from the left pocket to the right pocket. And so the very notion of stimulus is anti-economic growth because it's the process whereby the political class on the federal level extracts. After wrecking the economy, they've decided, okay, well, we should arrogate to ourselves a couple trillion more here and there to hand out, throw at our mistakes. And so as a rule, it's, it slows, slows economic growth. You don't solve central planning with central planning. And that's what happened. They imposed command and control. Oh, wow, we broke things in a major way. So let's throw trillions that we extracted from the private economy at our mistakes. And remember, when you extract from the private economy, broadly, you're extracting from the most productive. Yes, the rich, the people who create all the advances and who create all the opportunity. And yes, who create all the savings that make further progress possible. So as a rule, you're slowing economic growth because you're, you're stimulating consumption at right the time when a wrecked economy needs more savings, needs unspent wealth. Yes, the wealth of the rich, the most crucial wealth of all, a dollar in Jeff Bezos's pocket is exponentially more important to progress than a dollar in my pocket. And why is that? Because every dollar in his pocket is going to go into the creation of new businesses. All of his needs are taken care of. His wealth that the government doesn't take from him automatically goes into investment that creates the future for us. And so in this case, stimulus is the very process whereby we shrink the future. We slow advance. And so uh, it, it frustrates me when, when people talk about stimulus. Obviously, both sides do it. Uh, they know not of what they speak. Well, so speaking of dollars in Jeff Bezos's pocket, or in Uncle Sam's pocket, um, the the Biden campaign is uh, planning to raise taxes on a variety of activities, uh, including uh, nearly doubling the gains on um, capital gains, uh, and uh, also just this this endless um, class warfare uh, mongering promoting envy, um, promoting greed, which Ayn Rand properly defined as uh, the desire for the unearned. Um, what, what do you think is the most dangerous um, aspect of the, of the Biden tax plan? Uh, I would probably, anything that presumes that you can get progress by attacking the most productive people in society um, is dangerous. Uh, you know, I, I would be, but I, but I would be for greatly reduced taxes on the rich, even if you could prove to me what's not true, that the economy grows more, the, the more that you take from them. I just think it's immoral to say that just because Jeff Bezos has more money than I do, that he owes more than I do. Uh, no, uh, Jeff Bezos should be free to keep what he's produced. 
And so, uh, but probably if you're going to give me a choice about what, what I like least about uh, Biden's tax rhetoric, and let's hope it's just rhetoric, uh, uh, you know, once he's in office, assuming he wins, it's, it's, it's much more difficult to pass these things uh, once you're in office. Uh, but it would be the capital gains. Uh, the simple truth is that there are no companies and there are no jobs and there's no progress without investment first. Without savings, you just cannot move from, say, 5G to 6G. Without savings, you can't move from the Model T to the Lamborghini or the Ferrari. Savings are what, uh, what push us into the future. And so uh, the, the very notion that you would tax the savings that power all progress is, is just is just mindless. And, and, and to be clear, that one worries me more than the income tax, not because I don't think the income tax is terrible, but I, I've often rejected the notion. Sometimes people on our side say, well, you know, if we raise taxes too much, um, they'll just stop working. I don't think so. I think Jeff Bezos would work even if Bernie Sanders were elected president. He loves so much what he does. You couldn't, it would, it would take a very high tax rate to stop me from doing what I'm doing. Um, I think we could talk to most of the people on your board who are so in love with what they do. Uh, it's not tax rates or lower tax rates that cause them to, be, to want to work. They just, they're productive people. But high taxes on the rich do limit the amount of capital available to fund these geniuses. And so I think the focus uh, should be on reducing the burden on everyone. But if you gave me a choice in this, I think the most damaging one would be the, uh, the, cap, the, the increase in the tax on capital gains. So you mentioned our trustees, um, a couple of whom are joining us today. Obviously, a lot of the people that are joining us that are um, supporters of the Atlas Society are very inspired by the ideas of Ayn Rand, objectivism, but of course for fiction. So, and I, I, I think maybe that's part of, we've never really discussed it to, in too much detail, but um, one of the reasons I think your work has resonated so much with me, and I know you've shown up for the Alice Society, like, you know, before we were Irregular. really, you were there, you know, when our first gala, I was like, oh my God, John Townies, he bought a ticket, he, he came. So um, yeah, share with us a little bit of your Ayn Rand origin story, if you would. Isn't that fun? Everyone's got their Ayn Rand story. I just, I, <laughs> and so in, in my case, a friend from Semester at Sea, um, he sent me his paperback copy that he'd read of Atlas Shrugged. And this was 1994. And I picked it up one weekend and probably like many, maybe like you, I read it all weekend and I had breakfast with a friend on the Sunday and I said, have you read this book? And, you know, I'd heard of Ayn Rand before, don't get me wrong, but it was, it was such a revelation. And believe me, I was always for freedom. I was always for limited government, but the, to me, the best thing about Rand is the forceful way in which she explained the gene. These people are heroes. People like Reardon are heroes. They, they are bringing the future to the present with their vision and, and, and they're beset by scoundrels. And, and I love that. I, I love the elevation of, of the vital few without which life would be endlessly dreary. And, and so for me, uh, the book I already believed it, but it, it pushed my belief level up to a much higher level and it changed how I approached the world. I, I would look at someone like John Malone and say, oh, wow, you are Reardon. And I said at the time in 1994 that this book could have been written yesterday because I had seen what had happened to Michael Milken, one of the greatest capitalists ever. And, and, and my favorite Rand story of all, it involves Michael Milken. There was a New Yorker story years and years ago about Milken in prison. And what was he sent stacks and stacks of, but of, of Atlas Shrugged. And it was just so good as in people, the, the, the true believers got it and said, look at what they did to you. And so when the DOJ went after Bill Gates in the late nineties, I copied the, 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 the same thing and I sent him a copy of Atlas Shrugged. It's just something I had to copy what other smart people had done in the past. So the history is that. I just, I love the elevation of, 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 the, of the brilliant, uh, particularly in the commercial space, because that's how I view them. I don't want to live in a world without these people. 
Well, that's our reminder, you guys that are on our Zoom, that are watching us on YouTube to ask your, your questions. And John, it's quite exactly like you say in terms of how these books could have been written uh, yesterday. Um, last night when I was at dinner here and this restaurant, you know, the people at the restaurant the servers are really heroically trying to move forward. I mean, like talk about against such head, headwinds and against fear and against regulations. Um, and I, we had two more, we, we, there weren't martinis. The, this, um, my host wanted to have martinis. So they had instead, like they brought you a shot of vodka on ice and what it reminded me of just this experience was the party scenes from we the living okay where these people they had used to go to parties but now they were living in these bizarre times and under scarcity and under dictatorship and uh they were just making the the best they were making little canapes out of potato skins or they were making dresses out of coats and that's sort of what i feel like we're I, no, I think you put it so well. Yes, that that is. It's things like this that we're going through. This is Twilight Zone. And I don't have to tell you, it's just to go into restaurants, and I go into them all the time, this notion that I'm going to stop going to them and, and just check out of life based on fear like this is just, it's, it's, it's uh, anathema. But so these people who have to serve us with gloves and masks on, I find it so offensive that they're put in that position. And I get even more mad when I think that these restaurants, again, every business is a miracle. Yet these, the successful ones, it's so hard to be great. And yet they were told in March that this is no longer yours. This is our property. We will tell you what to do. The very people who brought us the DMV and the passport office have told those who know how to meet the needs of customers that you're no longer capable. You're no longer of doing right by them. We will tell you when you can be open and how many people can be in your place of business. The, again, Atlas Shrugged is timeless. I, anything like that is timeless because time after time, this is what politicians do. The arrogance of these low-life people who, who want to get rich like everyone else, but just don't want to work for it. So they get into politics so they can make money. Telling businesses how they can operate? You've got to be kidding me. It's hard for me to talk about. I get so mad thinking about what they did to good people, to, to, to the, the, the people on the low end that they put out of work and these honest people who risked their lives, risked much of their modern life to create a business and they've had it taken from them. It is the most disgusting, hideous thing. And it's once again, why we must own this narrative. We cannot stop talking about this because if we do stop talking about it, if we hand it to the other side, they will say that fear of a virus is what caused this contraction. No, it didn't. Once again, panicky politicians took from us what the most dynamic economy in the world. And, and, they, and they took from the rest of the world massive amounts of economic growth, people emerging from what had been horrendous before. This was politically driven that nothing more, nothing less. I agree with you. I think it's been vicious and I think it's been immoral. Um, the, the first Draw My Life that we did, we shifted and pivoted just like you did with your, with your book. Uh, was my name is coronavirus and it was coronavirus um, and it's up there on our website guys you can go watch it telling its story and it was sort of like who helped the virus you know who who were his adversaries along the way political correctness being uh, you know a ally and then having a setback though finding that there was things like soap you know that were uh effective uh, and that he started to get down but you know he realized that you know he might lose a battle but he could still lose uh, he could still win the war because the greatest enemy of viruses and sickness uh, is capitalism mm -hmm. so that if he could make common cause with the enemies of capitalism, that he, he would drain the economy of the capital that is needed to fund future cures, fund future technologies. So it's, um, it's a, cautionary, a cautionary tale. And uh, 
what we're seeing now with, with the restaurants, um, Peter Kopsis, uh, one of our trustees said, big lesson in fixed versus variable cost, okay? Uh, and then also I think Jeffrey Tucker has written about this so beautifully when he talked about exactly what you're saying right now, John, um, is the grotesqueness of affluent people being able to go and sit in a restaurant and uh, he called it the new feudalism of uh, the, the people that are serving. I mean, this used to be a joyous experience, you know, that we were both, you know, enjoying this. We were, even though I'm ordering the food, you're cooking the food, we, we were equals. And this is somehow kind of giving this message that, you know, some people are inherently um, better than, than others. And it was why like last night at, at, at dinner, there's, and we, all of us, each of us as individuals can take responsibility for this. I mean, there's a poor restaurant, it can hardly have anybody in and people come and they want to complain. They, 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 they want to complain about how they're doing it. They want to complain that they have to wear masks. They want to complain about how, what food, you know, they're, they're serving. I think that each of us can take some agency and take some responsibility in our individual lives and just treat each other with respect and a little bit of gratitude. Oh, there, there's no doubt true. I'm sure I stole some of this from Jeffrey. He's been, he's been uh, just so essential in this battle, he's he he been unwavering from the beginning, and and thank goodness for him, and what he's said. But it's you look at look at what they've done to chefs, the best chefs in the world. I I do believe this is a Randian story. They have told geniuses, wrap your genius in plastic. That's what we say now. Again, the people who run the DMV, they have told the best chefs in the world that you can no longer meet the needs of your customers in the way that you did. As though these chefs, if, if, if they didn't have government telling them what to do, wouldn't have made adjustments so that they could continue to operate their businesses. Of course they would. Why do athletes play hurt? It's not just, it's not for a paycheck. They can't get enough of what they do. People are chefs now. Why are chefs charismatic? Why do they call them rock star chefs? Because they're doing what they love and they've been told in modern times, you cannot do what you love. Wrap it in plastic and hand it out this way. Anyone who knows anything about food knows that it doesn't, doesn't hold very well if you wrap it up and send it somewhere. And so they don't even, it's it just, it's sickening. And yes, to your point with waiters and waitresses, we've told these subhumans, we will come and you can serve us. Just make sure to, 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 to put masks on and put gloves on. And my favorite about all this was during this, you know, these people sitting at home um, who wouldn't leave their houses. But of course, they would allow the subhumans who work at grocery stores to, you know, deliver to them. And they would they would contact Grubhub and Postmates. Oh, yeah, you can you can drop food dinner off at our house. But they, they put in the comment section in bold letter in bold letters. Do not knock on the door. Do not exclamation exclamation. Don't come near us. You risk your lives, but we will be safe. We are going to quarantine ourselves from, from I mean, it's, it's, it's sickening. Again, I cannot talk about this without becoming infuriated at what they did. Yeah, so I mean, I think, John, just like you're saying for uh, those that agree uh, on economic liberty, on individual rights, um, on the dangers of, of government uh, control, that we need to own the narrative about the fact that this devastation on so many different levels, economically, spiritually, emotionally, in terms of relationships, was caused not by a virus, but was caused by the state reaction to the virus. I think we can also, um, as individuals, like we can model, we can model for other people and how we treat people, you know, that are dropping off the, um, your, your food or who are serving you at a restaurant, go out of your way to be extra kind, you know, take double whatever the tip that you were going to mm -hmm. give, like do something in your individual life. I promise you, you can change the world that way. You can change yourself that way. So it's, um, so important. So we're, we're talking though also, and again, guys, ask your questions. Um, we're talking about work, we're talking about how we work, we're talking about the nature of these various businesses. Uh, that book that I had mentioned that our students 
um, have studied that Stephen Hicks featured uh, in the waterfall section of our website that we discussed in um, our uh, waterfall campaign uh, and it, Atlas Intellectuals. And actually, um, I wish this should be a, a primary feature of our book club. Uh, you talked about the end of work um, and you view the increased use of technology, artificial intelligence as a net positive, very similar uh, in a way to our honoree, Peter Diamandis. Can you elaborate that further? Oh yeah, uh, what does technology do? Um, it just removes all the awful things about work. It frees us up to pursue our unique brilliance. Let's not forget that 175 years ago when you were born, you kind of knew your path in life. And this was true even in the rich United States. As soon as you were able, you were going to become a farmer and work dawn to dusk six days a week on a farm trying to survive. And so you think about the creation of the tractor and, 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 and uh, fertilizer, call them robots. They're the biggest job destroyers in the history of mankind, but did they put us into bread lines? No, they freed us up to cure diseases, to create the automobile, to create the computer, to become math teachers, to become coaches. And so to me, I look at the robots that of course, witless economists and politicians say are, are, are an enemy of workers. And I say, no, in fact, they're going to cause everyone to fall in love with work. I, don't, I reject the notion that anyone's congenitally lazy. I reject the notion that anyone's congenitally stupid. If I had been born 175 years ago, I think I would have been lazy and stupid because nothing about me lends itself to being a farmer. But in an, in an economically advanced world, an automated world, I get to do what I love. And so when I walk into a room, I strut. I'm, I'm very confident about what I do because I get to do what I cannot get enough of. And to me, the greatest gift of economic growth beyond its speaking individual freedom is that it signals more and more people escaping work that they can't stand, that they have to do, and more and more people evolving, getting to do the kind of work that they can't get enough of, that has them excited about Mondays because they get to go do something that uniquely showcases their individual brilliance. And so when I think about this in terms of young people, we live in these exciting times, even right now, even amid these mistakes, so many of us like you and me get to do something that we can't get enough of, and I feel so lucky. But imagine 100 years from now, imagine 50 years from now, what people will do, be doing. The people who are watching who are in their 20s, I can't wait to see what you do for a job because in, it's going to be one of these things where I say they actually pay you to do that. Their video game coach is now a very highly paid profession. Video game player is a highly paid profession nowadays. So what will it be 50 years from now? And to think about what your kids will do. It's going to be amazing if we let the individuals who drive all progress, if we, if we let them remain free, if we stop this hideous backwards process whereby we say the rich are enemies, let's take from them. No, when the rich get to keep what's theirs, that's on its own a great thing. But it also does pay off because what choice do they have but to invest it? And in investing it, they drive the very productivity that frees more and more people to enter into professions that in the past people could have only dreamed about and really couldn't have dreamed about because they couldn't have imagined. It frees people to be uniquely great. And so again, it's, it's one of the things that I talk about a lot that, uh, that the definition of work is rapidly changing. And if we keep people free, it will change in ways that, that will stagger us for, for its grandiosity. That so resonates with me. Um, obviously, I'm not doing what I'm doing at the Atlas Society for no one who works at the Atlas Society, believe me, is doing it for the salaries, which are. Uh, but um, what, what you were mentioning about uh, Mondays so resonates. And I remember I didn't exactly fire somebody um, who worked for me who said, uh, thank God it's Friday, but it was a data point. And I eventually, you know, decided at some point that I needed to release that person to go and find for them what would be the thing where they would never say, thank God it's Friday. They would say, thank God it's Monday. I, I cannot stand Fridays. Like I get depressed on Fridays. Like Mondays, this is my favorite day because now, you know, 
we're going to do it now we're going to get it done so um so and i think what you're saying also will be so interesting i mean ayn rand yes she was a philosopher but she was an artist. I mean, her great contribution uh, was as an artist. And she talked about art as the recreation of reality according to your values. And think about all of the tremendous artists that will be, um, that will be liberated uh, from, from drudgery and be able to bring their unique gifts forward. But I do think we need a philosophic perspective so that, you know, people aren't just like acting like, uh, infants expecting other people to take care of them and are compelled or motivated to seek their happiness and to seek a productive purpose in their lives. And, and it is happiness. I, I don't think you can be happy unless you're working hard, but I don't think you can work hard unless you love what you do. You can't do it consistently. And so I think, but it's incumbent upon us um, we, you and I have discussed this before. I, I, I get, I see red every time someone talks about economic growth. Well, if we do this, we'll get uh, one percentage point higher in GDP. Have you lost your mind? What, what, for one, GDP is just such a worthless backward statistic, but let's talk about the beauty of this. Freedom leads to economic growth, which leads to people falling in love with what they do which leads them, I'll wager anything that Ayn Rand used to sneak off and hide to do her work, sneak off in her free time. That's when she wrote, that's what I do. I can't get enough of it. And I am so lucky for that. 20, 30 years ago, because there was less wealth creation, I couldn't do what I get to do today. And so we've got to remind people, economic growth is going to put you on the path to falling in love with what you do to where Mondays, again, aren't an awful thing. They're an exciting thing where, where work becomes your life in a fun way because you're doing something that uniquely elevates you, that reinforces your genius. And, and we don't talk about the beauty of freedom enough. Instead, so often we talk about it in terms of ratings of global economic freedom. Oh, please. And GDP growth and everything. What a bore. How about talk about what happens? Let's talk about the video game coaches, the people that get to do something that in the past would have branded them as a loser. I think about, there's, there's so many stories of this, but there's a chef in town in Washington, DC, who when his kids were young, I mean, it makes you sad, but it makes you happy at the same time. His kids were embarrassed to tell their friends what their dad did. And now they brag about it because Jeff has evolved in modern times with wealth creation. We now outsource so much of our dining to others. And so chefs are rock stars. And so what will be the future? It will be other professions that people used to laugh at that people instead say, this is what I do. There's a baguette maker in Paris right now who's the best in the world at it. He's a Tunisian immigrant. And he says, what I do in the kitchen is magic. That makes me so excited. He is so proud of what he does. And this is what economic growth gives to, brings to people. Well, I cannot get enough of you, John, and I am burning up all of our time with my questions. I'm going to get to some of our audience questions uh, because it's in my rational self-interest to do so. <laughs> But, um, but I, I still, as I'm, I'm, I'm looking at some of them, I did wanna ask you uh, the book that you signed for me um, on our last meeting together was, uh, again, you're just always coming at these from a totally unconventional perspective. I wish it wasn't unconventional, but, but it is. Um, and that was, they're both wrong, uh, referring to both Democrats and Republicans uh, that lists specific policies that each party uh, got wrong. And the one thing that they have in common seems to be a disinterest in the, um, Constitution. Who, who, who is fighting for the Constitution these days, other than Freedom Works? <laughs> <laughs> and no one's fighting for the Constitution because, as we both know, politicians act in their self-interest too. They want to have a cushy retirement, just like you and me. And their cushy retirement is rooted in government growing. Their cushy retirement is rooted in the tax code becoming more complicated, not less. That's how when you get out of politics, you can get into lobbying. You can get on the speaker's circuit bashing the very tax code that you helped create. And so 
um, they're both wrong is, is rooted in this idea, but broadly in this idea that I think both philosophies jump at that we need policy. No, we need a lack of policy. What do commercial geniuses routinely tell us? What does Jeff Bezos say? The richest man in the world, just about everything he tries fails. That's what Bill Gates said too. He experimented relentlessly, just about everything he tried failed. Now he had markets, they had, in each instance, they had markets telling them when they, when they did wrong. Uh, politicians, when they fail, they just throw more money at it. They failed in recent months since they extracted trillions more as though more command and control would, would, in, would grow an economy that was already being suffocated by command and control. These guys can't disappoint you because this is what they always do. And so uh, ultimately what the book is arguing, I mean, it goes policy by policy to show how clueless both sides are, but it's basically saying, stop looking for policy. The answer is always freedom. Free people, I don't know why I've got a smartphone that, that you know, 10 years ago would have cost millions and millions of dollars, but this is what, this is what free people produce. They, they, they meet our needs. And so stop looking to Washington to fix things. Just look to freedom. That should be your first and last default, at which point things will be fixed. All right, so we're going to get to some questions. Um, guys, we are probably not going to be able to get to all of them because there's a ton. Uh, what I am going to do is we're going to make this link available to John afterwards. Uh, we're not going to send him, you know, individual questions, but he'll have the link if he wants to go and jump in and take a look at any questions and, and respond to them on the, on the thread, then we'll let him do that. But he's a busy guy and he's got a baby. Uh, so you know, we'll do what we can. So Pam, Pam McGeary says, what do you think of France shutting back down completely except leaving the schools uh, open? Any thoughts on Macron's thought process on that? Oh, uh, for one, it'll be interesting to see how much France can shut down, uh, how much its citizenry will go for having its freedoms and ability to prosper taken from it again. Um, but I, I think it's a big mistake. I think it's a big mistake because I think it's horrifying when, when those who have guns can take freedom from people. But the other thing, but the bigger thing for this is if, if, if the virus is your fear, as Jennifer's already alluded, your only answer is, is, is freedom. A, because freedom produces economic growth, which means it produces the resources that, that enable you, that give you the information and, and the cures to fight things. Uh, back before John D. Rockefeller and Johns Hopkins, medical science was very primitive. If you broke your leg, the operation for it, if you didn't die, was, was amputation. It used to be that, that pneumonia was captain of man's death. It just, it killed you, but you, cancer was, was a distant killer because Americans didn't live long enough to get cancer. And so if you fear something, you must have economic growth to cure it. So that'd be the first thing. But the second thing is free people produce information. Remember how little we knew about AIDS in the 1980s. Remember back then the view was from Anthony Fauci. He wrote a report saying that, you know, AIDS could be passed around just by a husband and wife just standing in a room. It was that communicable. Well, that wasn't true. In England, they said one in five were going to get AIDS. No, of course, that, no, that, that wasn't true. How little we knew. And it's the same idea today. You want 330 different million different people in the U.S. and however many million in France doing their own thing. Some will lock down in total. Some will not leave their apartments for months at a time. Okay, that's, we'll learn from them. Does it work? Some, like my wife, will be washing their hands religiously, saying, oh, my God, don't, don't come near me. Wash, come, wash your hands first. Some, like me, will can't wait to get out to restaurants and bars until they open. And some will not change. They'll throw caution to the wind, hit the bars, date, all that, make out, do everything that you do as a single person. You want all those people doing what they would do because from them you learn, oh, if you're single and living the high life, does it mean you get the virus more quickly? Does it mean that you get a worse strain of it? Or do you just, does it have no impact at all? And let's find out on the more extreme end, from every person, free people produce information as to why a virus spreads, how, how lethal it is. Why on earth, if you're fearful of something, would you take away the very freedom that gives you the information and resources to fight it? 
Great. Um, we are really honored to have our senior scholar, uh, Professor Stephen Hicks here. Uh, he was one of the first to sign up for your webinar. And he has a question for John Tamney. Um, even though new technologies have been net job creators, why do so many automatically seem to think that they're net job reducers and or that this time is different? Oh, it's a great question. Um, why do so many people think this time is different with it? Um, I just think I just think it's natural for people realistically to look at others and say, oh, well, they're going to lose their jobs. And so they're fearful about it. really, I think, more what's happening to others. Um, who knows why? But the re reality is, as living individuals, we're constantly automation is constantly improving our lives and improving our ability to prosper at work. But I think there's this fear among people that if it if it's happening to quote others, if suddenly their their pro formerly prosperous work is no longer, maybe it'll eventually come to my job. Um, so I think there's it's probably something rooted in that. But probably the bigger answer is when are people most fearful of automation? It's when the economy is not growing enough. But isn't it ironic when the economy is growing? By definition, that's when you're destroying the jobs the fastest. And let's also add, where do people move? Are they moving to Buffalo and Flint and Aliquippa, PA for the jobs of the past that no longer exist? No, they're constantly moving to the parts of the U.S. where jobs are being destroyed the fastest. So I think while people express a certain emotion, as, as we agreed way back when we were at the Liberty Fund, watch what they do, not what they say. And what people do is they migrate to where automation is, is most prevalent and, and they run away from with great gusto from where automation is having the least impact. So again, I think it, it, people talk about express fears, but their actions signal they're really not worried about automation. They in fact love it because automation is what creates opportunity for them. Great, uh, Sam Santipolo uh, asks a question that I think, Sam, I'm gonna recommend that you join our Atlas intellectuals uh, or Atlas advocates. He's trying to prioritize. He's new to the philosophy, epistemology, metaphysics. Um, also, you can check out our pocket guide to objectivism. Of course, the uh, specialty of our founder, um, David Kelly is epistemology. Um, Mark Smith has a question back to the book that you were talking about and politics. They're both wrong. So in that way, we see you're talking about Republicans and Democrats. Um, but Mark wants to know, do you have a grip on what's wrong with the modern libertarian um, brand? What part is uh, of what part was not the election over the stupefyingly horrible Democratic Party is what he's saying. Um, so anyway, yeah. That is such a great question. Oh, where, where does one begin? What's happening with the modern libertarian movement? Um, the first thing I'll say is I often hear from libertarians, most people think like we do. Uh, they're, they're, they're tolerant of different lifestyles. They want government to be small, take less of the checkbook, and they're, they're skeptical about foreign adventurism. But what I've always asked my fellow libertarians, if, if you can call me one, is, well, why hasn't someone taken that proverbial $20 bill off the ground and run, run, uh, run for the White House and, and won the White House handily if everyone agrees with us? And so I guess I want to say part of it is that maybe not everyone agrees with us, uh, hard as that is to, to accept. Um, you could argue that I've also argued to the high, to high end uh, card carrying creators of the libertarian movement. One reason I haven't always said I was a libertarian is not because I'm not for limited government, but because I think so many libertarians in the movement weren't really. They're just endlessly negative. The world is always ending. The deficits, this, everything is always wrong, which I think is such a loser way to approach things. And so I think one reason libertarianism hasn't succeeded is because it is so pessimistic. Does anyone realize how lucky we are that we get to have an ideology in the first place? It's the stuff of the privilege. Let's celebrate what we have instead of complaining all the time about how awful life is. We're so lucky to be in the United States. And then the other theory, and it, it, again, I, I've, I've tried to understand why certain high libertarian groups have totally sat out this uh, virus. Good point. Good I find point. horrifying. Jeffrey Tucker put it best. I hope I don't mangle it. He said so much the libertarian movement has become a fundraising operation. And he's so right. 
Um, where have they been on this? And so it makes me think the biggest problem for libertarianism nowadays is it, is it succeeded too much. You can't be radical and successful. And by that, I mean, once you become an accepted ideology, once you become an accepted brand, you start being able to attract the very people to your fraternity or, or sorority who in the past would have turned their noses up to you. And attracting these people who in the past would have turned their noses up to you, you're, you're pulling in the very people who are going to be more conservative in their approach to things. I'm not talking conservative in ideology, just close to the best. Let's think back to the Wall Street Journal's editorial page in the 1970s was revolutionary. It was on the outside. Is running these outsider thinkers like Robert Mundell and Arthur Laffer. Well, it became so successful that nowadays it can get anyone to write there. And I think it shows up to some degree. It's not as revolutionary, as radical as it once was. And I think a challenge for libertarianism is it's become so successful. It's attracted such high-end, rich donors that in becoming that way, they've become scared of upsetting this great institution they've created. We've got money flowing in. We're getting academics who used to turn our noses up. So let's not take risks. So while civil, li while liberties are being taken from people around the world, while, while hundreds of millions are rushing toward starvation, while hundreds of millions are rushing toward, um, what's the word, poverty, let's sit back and say, well, we should respect the science. We should respect the wearing of masks. Um, Again, where were these groups? They know who they are. And it makes me, I guess I think the biggest problem, Jeffrey and I've talked about this extensively, is they've become too rich, too privileged. And in becoming too rich and privileged, they're too, they're too, they've become too careful. Yeah, I, I have to agree with you there. And, um, you know, I do hear from donors and they are uh, not happy with some of the prioritization uh, and emphasis. I like to always say, okay, choice of doing one thing is a choice of not doing another thing. And um, I guess I'd also say on uh, libertarians, and I, I worked at the Cato Institute. I love libertarians. I'm having a dinner for <laughs> Nick Gillespie uh, Saturday. Um, so I'm, you know, I, I closely identify with a lot of uh, libertarian positions. However, you know, and one of the criticisms that Ayn Rand had of libertarians, and of course, it was a different era. It was a different day and age. But uh, there seems to be also a reticence to talk about morality, you know, and it's like, hey, you're just you're free to do whatever you want. And I like to talk about freedom as freedom to do good, like freedom, let's prioritize being productive, you know. And um, I, I think that sometimes libertarians, I get sort of uh, alienated, you know, so focused on um, drug legalization. Okay, I get the economics of it. I get the politics of it. But can we talk about sobriety? You know, can we talk about why, like, degrading your mind and destroying your mind, which is a basic means of survival, is uh, is not you know a great thing? So, I think. Look, hey, if libertarians are successful, but if there wasn't room for improvement, what would be the fun of it? That's right. I love All this. right, we're going to take one more question, uh, and then we are we are so grateful for um, for John's time. Vicky would like to know uh, what do you think of the current Google antitrust lawsuit, oh, or the same the kind of focus in general, let's say by conservatives, a lot of conservatives on um, social media as uh, potentially. Look, what's, happened to, what's happened to conservatives and Republicans? Uh, look, I was in Great Barrington for the, for the document. Um, I wholeheartedly believe in it, but I also wholeheartedly believe in Google's right to, to hide it. It's a private business. Since when do Republicans want to haul CEOs before, the, before Congress to explain themselves? Yet the highest of high, even the Wall Street Journal's editorial page said it's the right call to call Facebook before Congress to explain what it's doing. Um, so Republicans want the state to correct what they deem bad actions. I used to, I like when they used to say that businesses were free to make economic decisions. Um, are the Republicans next going to say, even though they've historically decried 
um, uh, affirmative action? Do they, will they now expect preferential treatment for their views on Google, um, on, on Twitter, uh, preferential placement? I mean, what is, so on its own, it's just, I feel it's really kind of sad. Now, Google's kind of interesting because, you know, in 2006, uh, it still trailed MySpace in terms of daily visitors. Well, how'd that work out? Because, you know, MySpace at the time was viewed as, as a monopoly because guess what? It's, it was backed by a uh, News Corp and Rupert Murdoch, no one's going to beat MySpace, but we don't talk about MySpace today. And Google now has obviously since eclipsed, um, eclipsed uh, MySpace in terms of daily visitors. Uh, the reality is that in 2000, what were, the, what were the gold standard of internet companies? Oh yeah, AOL and Yahoo, how are they doing today? Um, importantly about that time was that Amazon at the time was amazon.org because it couldn't make profits. Uh, Apple was, 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 was uh, near bankruptcy, uh, limping its way out. Apple had just, or Microsoft, of course, just been neutered by the federal government needlessly. Um, you know, of course, Google was a private company, one of thousands that was doing search. Uh, so no one really knew about them. And of course, Facebook didn't exist because Mark Zuckerberg was still in high school. And so wait, a Republican Justice Department wants to go after Google now? Well, what does that tell you? The high valuations in Silicon Valley signal that Google's dominance is ephemeral. Why is there so much investment going into Silicon Valley? Because the view is that A, Google's dominance is, is beatable, but B, those who beat it will have even higher valuations. And so with antitrust, it's a anti-consumer. We should say it's a miracle anytime business gets major market share. That means that they fulfilled an unmet market need that other businesses either didn't realize existed or looked at and scoffed as saying it's unimportant. So for one, we should be cheering them, but the fact that they've gotten it is the surest sign that their, their days of being on top are numbered. Um, and we know this because there's value in beating the business that's on top. And so um, antitrust lawyers are by definition living in the past. Um, if they could actually discover market dominance ahead of time, they certainly wouldn't be antitrust lawyers. They'd be billionaires instead of doing these jobs, which amounts to them acting as ankle biters, uh, going after the successful. And so everything about antitrust is backwards and matchlessly stupid, but that's the world we live in. We've seen it time after time, and that's why Atlas Shrugged is so timeless if you have the temerity to super succeed, even in the United States, invariably the government will come after you at some point. Well, this has been possibly the best uh, Atlas Society asks that we have ever had. Thank you so much, uh, John. Right. For, yeah, yeah, we did it for joining us. Uh, where are the best how, what's the best way of um, following, you know, what you're up to, which, which social media threads do you prioritize or, I mean, obviously go and buy his books. Yeah, buy several, several copies of all my books um, at the highest prices you can, but no, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I, uh, you can, I usually put out three to four columns a week. I've never understood. That's my other complaint about uh, the, the libertarian movement. Uh, if you're going to be in the movement, write and write a lot. And so I try to put out three to four columns a week. I feel so lucky to be able to do what I do. And so you can find all of those. I write them usually at Forbes or Real Clear Markets, but I put everything at Real Clear Markets. And, and there's just so much to write about right now. And, and I just hope all of you watching know how flattered I am that you would take the time to listen to me. I, please know I feel so lucky to do what I do. And if that's if I can have parting words, that was probably the sickest thing about what these politicians did and putting so many people out of work. Luckily for me, I didn't have my work taken from me because I couldn't have handled it. Warren Buffett could offer me many millions and I don't think I would give this up because I love it so much. And I think of all the talented people who suddenly had their ability to be great taken from them. Again, go back to the chefs who were uniquely doing bespoke things, suddenly told that they couldn't do that anymore because they were a threat to the lives of other people. What a sick, sick thing. And so thank you for watching because I, I feel so lucky to get to do what I do. I, I just, I cannot stress that enough. 
Well, we are very lucky and fortunate to have you in our circle and among our friends and we're very, very grateful for you. So uh, we will be supporting you. We will be looking um, at uh, looking eagerly forward to your next book. We're going to feature your other books in our book club. And uh, I look forward to getting together with you soon. And um, all of you that are watching, thank you, number one, for joining us. Um, I want to give a special thank you to everybody who supports the Atlas Society uh, and in particular has supported us um, in many cases because of our strong decision not to take government bailout money. Uh, and I'm particularly also grateful to all of the students you know, that are the budding philanthropists who have given five dollars ten dollars um i'm really proud of you in particular so thank you for that um we are going to see you check out the event section of the atlas society uh website we have got a full fall of uh live webinars for you starting um off next week with my dear friend john fund who is going to be talking to us on wednesday uh, with some commentary on you know what. <laughs> so uh, so join us and thank you for all of your engagement. I love you guys. Mwah. I love you, John. Hope to see you soon. Okay. Thank you. Bye.